to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, podcast uh, host and author Marshall Davis is here with me to discuss John 3, uh, Christian non-duality and uh, being reborn. Welcome, Marshall. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. This is, I mean, I, I've done, I've been on other podcasts as a guest, but this is the first one that's ever centered on scripture interpreting a passage of scripture so this is interesting <laughs> well um i actually had you suggested as a potential guest from one of the patrons of my podcast and um, it was an excellent suggestion I'm, I'm so thrilled with it maddie thank you for for suggesting marshall because i learned a whole bunch of stuff really quickly about uh, things that i hadn't really done a lot of research into before and, uh, and you have a podcast called The Tao of Christ, which is uh, very right. cool. You also wrote a book by the same name. And, uh, and it is a, um, a very different approach to Christianity than I think a lot of people will be um, familiar with, especially if they were raised in more traditional churches and haven't uh, familiarized themselves with people like Richard Rohr or, um, you know, Eastern spirituality in merging with Christianity and things like that. So uh, before we go into uh, the Tao the of Christ and your podcast and your books, why don't you tell folks a little bit about your background and how faith plays a part in your life today? Okay. Um, I was brought up in a mainline Protestant church. Uh, at the time, it was Congregational Church. It became today the United Church of Christ. I... Um, but that was just kind of like a, you know, traditional, you know, uh, cultural type of Christianity that, that I had as a, as a young person. And uh, I went through a lot of uh, searching and examination, like a lot of people do in their teenage years. I basically considered myself uh, an atheist, I think, when I was probably by the time I was junior high or the beginning, beginning of high school. But then, but I, I kept I kept searching through through high school and into college, and uh, became a religion major. So I was taking the uh, the search quite seriously. I became a religion major, and I did have a uh, when I was in college, what you would call a evangelical conversion experience, you know, the traditional born again, we're going to be talking about John 3. So this, this is uh, significant for a lot of folks that come out of the evangelical background. So, uh, and I was a, uh, a pastor for a full-time pastor in Baptist churches. Uh, I'm American Baptist by ordination. I attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and I got my Master of Divinity and my Doctor of Ministry from, from that school. And after seminary, I had my first church and had churches in various states, uh, basically in the Midwest and, and in the East. And I uh, continued being a pastor for, for 40 years until I retired in 2016. But before I retired, I went through 
a reexamination, a deconstruction of my of my faith. And it was due to really a crisis in the church and in the, in the congregation conflict, uh, the way it happens so often in so many churches. And it caused me to step out of ministry for about, I intentionally stepped out of ministry for a year. It ended up being a, a year and a half. And during that time, I was deconstructing my Christian faith. And, and at the end of that process, I had basically uh, laid aside my Christian heritage and looked, examining every part of it and seeing if it was really true or not and deciding again and again that I couldn't see the truth in it. And when I got rid of everything as far as what God was and who Christ was and, and all of that, when I had nothing left, then I had this shift in perspective that uh, is often called non-dual awareness or spiritual awakening or or something like that. And I came to see that is really what Nicodemus here in this passage we're going to be looking at is really talking about. And is what it really means to be born of the spirit or born of above or even even born again. So uh, now I would still consider myself a, a Christian, but I see um, the message of Christ in a very different way than I did uh, throughout those years when I was a traditional Baptist pastor and would have considered myself an, an evangelical Christian. So that kind of sums, sums it up. Uh, if you have any questions about that narrative, I'll be glad to answer them. Well, thank you for sharing. And I think that like your story will resonate with a lot of people. Not everybody spends 40 years in ministry, obviously, but, but there are a lot of folks who have experienced these sort of sea changes in their life of um, how they understand not just uh, their relationship with Christ, you know, to use the evangelical language, but how they understand their place in the world or outside of the world or what eternity is or what it looks like, what God is. Um, how God acts, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's a lot of people who would um, would understand, especially the uh, teenage atheist phase that you described. That's something that I experienced myself. It's something that a lot of folks, I think, right. um, especially in my generation of people kind of experienced. And and we see this, um, this uh, and deconstruction in general is, is like kind of a big, a big topic right now. There's more and more people who are trying not to necessarily uh, pull apart their faith entirely and and start at zero necessarily, but to to really pull apart the pieces of their faith that have that have kind of turned on them or have turned on their their communities or their cultures and uh, have tried to make peace with the good and the bad that the church has done and is continuing to do. And uh, and so yeah, it's a it's a really great story. Thank you, thank you again. And and um, and I think that. Uh, I think this will be a good place in just describing your transformation, your spiritual understanding, and the change in uh, in you. I think this is a good place to pivot into the uh, the passage, and and it'll all kind of come uh, up from there. Everything else that I kind of wanted to talk about with you, I think, will come up in this passage. Okay. So John three uh, contains one of the single most quoted verses in the entire, or series of verses in the entire uh, Bible, certainly the New Testament. Um, and that's John three sixteen, but I think our primary conversation here is going to be between John three one and John uh, three fifteen, 
is uh, at least what I think we're going to be focusing more on because I think that there's more having to do relevant to the work that you have done and the writing that you do and and also a lot to um, discuss on different denominations, interpretations, and messaging in in their interpretations of these uh, translations of uh, different different uh, verses here. So I'm going to start. What's your what's your preferred translation of the Bible? Do you have one? Uh, I don't really have one. I have this Bible that I've used for many years, which happens to be the New King James Version. But I just do that because I uh, like the uh, the rhythm and the beauty of the King James, but not necessarily the archaic archaic vocabulary of it. Mm-hmm. Now I know that's not it's not based upon the most up to date uh, biblical scholarship as far as the Greek texts are concerned. So if I have to go go into it, you know, in depth, I need to look look at something else. <laughs> but I had to take both. Greek, Greek and Hebrew in seminary, so I can go to the go to those texts and I can figure it out without having to rely upon the English translation, which is helpful. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's very helpful, and that's something that I've only started to do in an amateur sense. Uh, that has really opened my mind to um, understanding uh, what's actually being said, or maybe what could have been the original intention. That's all that translations really do, right, is they take the the raw text, they take the Greek or they take the Hebrew, then they say this is probably what they were trying to communicate here. There's a lot of paraphrase versions of the Bible, then there's some very literal translations of the Bible, and ultimately they're just trying to make sense of a document that looks absolutely nothing like the English Bibles that we have today right? Um, with no paragraph breaks and no... Um, chapter breaks and no line line numbers and and verse numbers and things like that it's just not there yeah and they they, they, they the the text did not even have uh spaces between the words you have to separate yeah. have to separate <laughs> the words yeah. and certainly no red text where jesus is talking right, right which is something right. i want to bring yeah. up with you <laughs> that's it's very important for this particular passage yeah, yeah. it is uh, you did an episode on uh, John three, and you made a very interesting comment. I thought about how uh, where where Jesus is talking might not be totally understood correctly in most um, English Bibles that use the red text for uh, where Jesus is talking. Um, your um, your idea of where it stops being Jesus and starts being the author of John uh, is a little different than most people's interpretations, which I want to get into because I think that's a really interesting point, and it's and it's cogent. It, it makes sense with what we see happening in the Gospel of John as a whole. So do you want to get into that now or what? Uh, no, we'll, we'll get to that, I think, to okay. those verses um, here. Okay. I just wanted to make one more comment about the translation issue because it's something that we talk about in almost every episode of the show. Okay. Finding that balance, uh, finding your translation, um, this is uh, the general you, um, f- finding the one that resonates best with you, I think, is a balance, right? Because you need to not only find the uh the translation that speaks to you on like an artistic level and speaks to you on on a literary level but you also need to find one that you think is at least somewhat accurate right and there's always this walk because some of the most literal translations to the greek are very hard to read and and they're not they're not reader friendly and they um they can throw you from what you're actually trying to get out of the text um Whereas if you go too far into some of the paraphrased versions, some of the ones that feel more literary, they can be 
totally misinterpreting what it is that was originally written. And, and so for all of you out there, uh, keep looking if you feel like you haven't found one. There are so many translations <laughs> in the world, and, uh, and some better than others, obviously. It's important to remember that all translation is interpretation. Yes. As long as you are, as long as you realize that, then you're you're a step ahead of people who think that you know the English is word for word. Like I have during my lifetime, every once in a while, come up against the uh, King James only folks, you know, who believe that the text that was translated in 1611 is the only authentic uh, text. So they're basically saying this English interpretation is the only one. And uh, obviously, it's not. <laughs> That's such a Western world mindset, too. It's in. I, I've always thought right. that that um, right. that perspective on scripture was so bizarre to me that, with all of the research that even that's been done in in the last century, that we haven't been we, that we haven't been able to come up with something better. Well, no, I think we have, and I think we all we have many instances of of uh, truer to the text. Plus, there's been manuscripts and codexes and things like that that have come within the last 200 years that weren't even right. available to the people who are translating the King James. I think the folks that 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 gravitate toward that type of thinking, uh, you know, the King James is the only, only translation, the ones that are really looking for some type of external authority, that, and they can't allow any uh, ambiguity at all. Uh, in that, so, so they so they have to pick one. So they pick this one because it was uh, one of the first English translations. Yeah, and I think there's like a reflexive, um, there's like a, a reflexive human um, reaction that we have when we feel disoriented or we feel uncertain or or we feel kind of lost. We'll look to grab onto something certain. We'll look right. to grab onto something that that creates a box that's very tight and structured for us. Um, this is something that I actually see a lot in the generation after me, like younger folks in their late teens and early 20s, we see gravitating towards more like conventional forms of religious practices and more more ordered forms of um, of the church. And just um, generally, like politically, we're seeing more of a swing towards conservatism in very young people because they feel disoriented in this world that has become increasingly chaotic. Uh, and it's it's odd, you know. It's a very strange thing to see as 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 like a, I'm in my mid 30s, so I you know we, I lived through the last 20 years of the the postmodern world getting more and more postmodern and post postmodern, and things getting stranger and stranger and stranger. So you know it makes sense, I guess, from a from like a human perspective, why people would do that. But at the same time, it feels like you close yourself off to a lot of understanding when you allow yourself to be stuffed into that box. And you become very vulnerable to, uh, to other authorities that you aren't acknowledging. For example, those who would interpret the scripture in, in, a, in a certain <laughs> way. You, you just kind of yeah. hand, your, hand your brain over to them. <laughs> and that's a dangerous practice. Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to start in the ESV today, but I did want to bring in, okay. as per usual, I want to bring in the, the David Bentley Hart translation, which I use from time to time because I, I find it useful and helpful and interesting. And then I want to use the, uh, the voice which is a kind of pseudo paraphrase. It's not quite like the message, but it's a it's um, it's written out almost in like a script style, and so I find that to be interesting too. But I'll start here, and we'll just read a few verses, 
and then we'll pause. I'll probably go verses 1 through uh, 3, and then we'll just stop there and discuss. Now, there was a man of the Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A lot going on in these first three verses, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, the background we have on Nicodemus is that he was uh, part of the Sanhedrin uh, council, that he was a ruler among or a leader among the Pharisees. But we see him... Now, sometimes when the Pharisees address Jesus in, in an honorable way, they're kind of doing it in like a sarcastic way. Do you get the sense that he's saying like rabbi in a sarcastic way here, or is he being earnest in, in talking with Jesus? I think he's earnest because of how he comes. He seems to be coming individually, even though he does say, uh, use we here. You know, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. But it doesn't seem to be anybody else there. So I think he's talking about we, meaning uh, Pharisees or, or you know, other folks that he, he knows. But I think he's alone. And he comes by night, which, uh, which means that he doesn't want to be seen. Mm. So I think that he is sincerely uh, searching. Uh, and I think... Christ uh, knows this, which is why he responds the way he does, rather than respond the way he does to the Pharisees who often come up to him and want to debate him. But he doesn't seem to be wanting to debate here. Uh, he seems to be want, sincerely wanting to, to, to see who, who Jesus is, because he really does believe that he is from God. Jesus's answer to Nicodemus here, I think, is particularly interesting because he's not really answering or responding in a direct way to what Nicodemus is saying, right? He's he's kind right. of, it, it's a response, but it's not a direct response to the statement that's been made to him. Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher come from God and God is with you, which is interesting language too, but God is that no one can right. do these sorts of signs unless God is with him, which is acknowledging a sort of divinity without saying, oh, we know that you're the Christ. We know that you have spirit, we, that you have the spirit with you, essentially. I think it's important to notice what signs he's talking about um, here. Um, the chapter before is the first of seven signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. That's a turning the water into wine. But right after that, right after turning the water and the wine, there is this scene which at the, in the Gospel of John happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas in the Synoptic Gospels it happens at the end of his ministry, and that is the cleansing of the temple, which is a sort oh. of sign in, in itself. And Jesus uh, goes on from there. I mean, the, after he does that, the Jews, it says, answered and said, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And these things are cleansing the temple, you know? And Jesus responds mm. with the sign of destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then that goes into the whole idea of re resurrection 
and everything. But that's the context, which is important. It's always important when you're reading a passage like this, not to start just at verse one of chapter three, but to see what is what is happening beforehand, uh, which is about the signs. And Nicodemus mentions the signs, and the mentions that that mm. he knows that God is with him. If he believes that, and yet Jesus comes and he is obviously challenge, challenging the temple authority, and, and means the challenging the whole sacrificial system, and and challenging the Sadducees, who were, of course, the, the priestly caste at that time. So um, there's a, Nicodemus is saying a lot, and he's saying something dangerous even by saying that he believes that God is with Jesus, because uh, a lot of the Pharisees and the Sadducees would say just the opposite, and, Jesus, and they ended up mm -hmm. killing him, executing him for, for believing that God wasn't with him that he was actually a heretic and a blasphemer. Yeah, the, the context of that, that immediate note, I think, is really important, especially. So we know that the, the Gospels overlay but don't directly, um, don't directly always fit into each other, right? We see instances of timing differences and character differences and different people saying different things across all of the Gospels. And the Synoptic Gospels primarily say about the same thing with with some variances but then john's kind of stands outside of those but still has some corroborating stories and some things that 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 fit but the placement of jesus cleansing the temple and then immediately being approached by a pharisee is very interesting and sets i think nicodemus apart from his like pharisee cohorts because he's not um he's not falling in line and certainly acknowledging uh the the the, the spiritual power or the, the presence of God with um, a man who is doing something very revolutionary or at least right. very dangerous, you're right, in, in, his, uh, in his time. So uh, thank you for making note of that because I think that that's really, really crucial. And, you know, it could be understood, too, that um, where John's gospel starts compared to where, say, Matthew or Luke starts, we, we could understand that there would have been other there might have been other miracles that happened between the wedding, which is largely, you know, the first miracle in here and, and other, you know, a thought to be among the other Gospels as well. Um, but there could have been other signs, too, that Nicodemus had known or heard about or something like that, like his, his legend was growing at this time. So there, there could have been other instances of, of unexplainable uh, events. You're talking historically now, uh, which is different than talking about this as a literary unit. You know, when you, you, when you deal mm -hmm. with the gospel, you have to deal with it by, give, by looking at the information that it gives you, rather than trying to import information from other gospels back into this. I mean, what you're saying may or may not be true, but there's no way to determine that, historically speaking. You know, so we have to go with what we have here in the Gospel of John, which is basically these chap chapter two here. <laughs> chapter one, there's not uh, <laughs> much going on as far as signs. Not much of the there. same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. No, but that's a very that's a very good point. Now, that leads me, I think, to maybe another question about um, your understanding of Scripture in general and your understanding of the Gospel of John. Who do you think... Or, or what is your theory on who wrote the Gospel of John? 
and and sort of when do you place it not within the historical context of the other gospels but uh, chronologically in time who wrote this and when were they writing it and where well i i i go with traditional i mean with traditional mainstream scholarship biblical scholarship that that basically says that the gospel of john is dated probably in the the 90s so it's the latest of the of the four gospels and even that even the text itself at the end of the gospel of john and this is important it's important for for interpreting chapter 3 as well as anything else that the closing verses of the of the gospel of john if you want to look at them i'll, I'll read them for you um, the last two verses uh, it says, this is the disciple. So uh, the, the, the one that the, the Gospel of John is based upon is the testimony of the beloved disciple who is never named in the Gospel of John, but is commonly understood to be John, the son of Zebedee. So this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here you have three personal pronouns here. You have, you have the we, and you have the, the him, and you have the I. And, as, and Johannine scholars take this to mean that this is based upon the, the testimony and even written testimony of the disciple, the apostle John, the son of Zebedee. But it came out of his community that we know was in, in Ephesus. So this is in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. So this gospel came out of the context of a Christian community in Asia Minor. But it also talks about an I here, which is different than the disciple and different than the community. And this is this I is either the final editor or even the actual editor author of this book they, who put it together. You can kind of see it as a ghostwriter even today. You know, if the president of the United mm -hmm. States wants to write a write a book, he's he doesn't write it. He gets somebody. He gets a professional writer in there who knows what he's doing or what she's doing, and uh, and uh, and writes it. But it's in his name, and uh, and that's what's happening here. This is uh, this is probably this is such this is the best Greek. So I'm told. I don't know enough about it to know. They say that John has the best Greek in the New Testament. So this is a very educated person. A uh, a, a a, a good good writer, good author, and he writes this, but he's writing it based on the testimony of the Apostle John, who was very old at that time, and uh, and in the context of a community of faith that has its own agenda and has its own history. Where where is it standing now at night after ninety A.D. And this is how the Gospel of John is different than the other Synoptic Gospels. Most of the scholars would date the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as sometime between 70 and 80 or 85 AD. And, uh, but John is, is after that, which means that the 
other gospels were written after the destruction of Jerusalem, which is important, but uh, the Gospel of John was written after the Council of Jamnia, which is the dividing point between Judaism and Christianity. So not the Gospels, Christianity was still part of the Jewish religious movement. It went, it, at 90 AD, uh, Jewish uh, leaders got together and said, well, we want to separate ourselves from this Jesus movement. So they are not true Jews. So that's why in the Gospel of John, you have uh, this reference over and over again to the Jews, which has become, which became later a very anti-Semitic approach, which is why so much anti-Semitism came out of the Gospel of John, because called the, the, the Jews as the enemy. But that's simply because uh, of the historical setting of which it arose, that the the Judaism saw itself as different from and apart from and really opposed to the Jesus movement. So that's the context, that's the historical context of the Gospel of John and the dating and the author, the way I understand it. Hmm. That's good. Okay. Thank you for, for that. Um, and I think that that, that is uh, very, very helpful in our understanding of this particular gospel, right? And you made a very good point. Let's talk about, if we're talking about the gospel of John, let's talk about the gospel of John. Let's not right. try to lay these on top of each other because this is all we really have in this particular text is this text. So yeah. um, I want to read Jesus's response in verse three again, and I want to read it actually in the David Bentley Hart translation. Um, because in the ESV it says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In David Bentley Hart's translation, he says, uh, amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And um, what is your interpretation of that literary difference? You know the Greek, so you know that there is some vagueness in, in the Greek there. And, and this can be translated uh, the, those various ways, a born again, but, but born from above, or born, and later on he talks about born of the spirit. So uh, it, it can mean either one. And, uh, you know, what Jesus meant is up for grabs because we don't really know if Jesus was speaking uh, Greek to Nicodemus or not. Uh, probably not. I mean, almost certainly Jesus knew Greek, and I think because he's from Galilee of the Gentiles, he often spoke Greek uh, to, to Gentiles. But uh, his native language would have been Aramaic, but he also would have spoken Hebrew. If he's speaking to a Pharisee who's a ruler of the Jews, he's probably speaking Aramaic or maybe maybe even Hebrew. So, so you know, what what does what does what does that say? I don't know about uh, what, what Jesus actually is meaning here. But as far as the Greek text is yeah. concerned, you can say it could mean either, and probably does uh, mean one mean possibly both you know, born again or born from above. So he's talking about, but it clearly, he, he, we don't have to guess because he goes on to describe exactly what he means by it. He talks about a spiritual birth mm -hmm. here. So he obviously, Nicodemus understands him to be meaning born uh, in, a, in a, a separate time or a second time or whatever. 
So, because he talks about being born of his mother in mother's womb again and all that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think the important point here is not just born again or born anew or born from above, but that he says he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what I focus on. He doesn't say, you know, because mm. we usually we take this to mean enter the kingdom of God, which he does say later on. So it does mean that. But here he starts off talking about not entering the kingdom of God, but seeing the kingdom of God. So this is a, a visionary experience he's talking about here. And once you see this is after his, his baptism, which is, was itself a visionary experience. I think Jesus is talking about his own conversion experience, if you want to call it that. Uh, in talking about this passage. So he is sharing what he knows and what he has experienced himself. Uh, more sort of orthodox understanding, I guess I should say um, traditional, more evangelical kind of understandings of this passage seem to imply that the sea, the kingdom of God, means you won't get to the kingdom of God. After you die, you won't go to heaven, is, is kind of the understanding I think a lot of people have of this passage. But it pretty clearly isn't saying that. Right, the, uh, the, the Greek for the word see there literally means to see with the eyes or see with the mind, to perceive. Um, it's a, you, like you said, it's a right. visionary uh, statement there. It's not one of saying you'll never, you'll never see heaven if, you don't, if you're not born again. That's not what he means. He means see the kingdom, experience the kingdom of God, understand it. Um, now, what the kingdom of God is is another question, right? <laughs> yes it is are we going to get into that question <laughs> yes yes let's <laughs> so okay. of course Nicodemus's Nicodemus's response to uh to Jesus here is is going back to the physical saying well how could I be born again uh right. I can't just like crawl back into my mother um but that's obviously like he's missing the point he's kind of far afield of what Jesus is trying to communicate here um, what do you think Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God? I think he's talking about the presence of God in the world. We might call it the omnipresence of God. So I don't think he's talking about a um, heaven as a place somewhere out, out there. But I think he's talking about uh, that the kingdom of God that Jesus in the softer gospel says is at hand. It's within arm's reach. It's right here. You know, in the Gospel of Thomas, for example, which didn't make it into our canon, it's even clearer that Jesus says that this kingdom of kingdom of the Father, he calls it there, is spread out upon the earth and people do not see it. So here's the seeing again, you know. So if the kingdom of God is present, it's whether or not you see the kingdom of God or not. So I think he's talking about the the presence of God and the experiential presence of God. That, that's what Jesus is referring to. That's interesting. When we think of kingdom, I think a lot of people have like geographic boundaries in their mind of what the kingdom of God must be a place. This is where our heaven thinking comes from, right? A lot of people get this notion of heaven and the kingdom of God kind of conflated or mixed up. And so they think this is a geographical location that Jesus is talking about. But if you think of a kingdom as like a reign, as um, right. sort of a time and place and space, um, the the ruling of God, which is the power of God, which is the kingdom of God, which is all around us, like that seems to be more what Jesus is talking about here. Right, right. It's it's the influ the the realm of influence of God, or or the mm -hmm. uh, the where where God is. 
you could say. And if God is omnipresent, then mm -hmm. God is everywhere. So the kingdom of God is present here now. It's just a matter of having your eyes opened to be able to see the kingdom of God, which he, he uses the analogy of being born from above. So it's not as though you aren't already in the kingdom or the kingdom isn't amongst us, but that you won't really understand it. You won't really see it right? Um, to, to see it with your mind or see it with your eyes until you have this transformative experience, this born again experience, which I think um, has been interpreted in so many different ways over the years, be it um, some people think, well, you do the water baptism as an adult, you give your life to Christ, you make a personal relationship with Jesus, and suddenly you are born again. You're a born-again Christian, which is, I, I think, a, a different idea kind of entirely. But it does imply a certain changing within yourself that right. allows for that shift in perception. Yes, and the, and the difference of uh, who or what is in control, because the, the whole idea of kingship, kingdom means there's a king. When Even that phrase is, I mean, if Jesus had come in the 21st century, we wouldn't be talking about the kingdom of God because we don't talk in terms of monarchs, you know, unless you're in England or, right. or some other country that has, still has kings. We would use some other phrase entirely. But uh, so that, that's why I think they, uh, the presence or omnipresence of God is really a much better way of com coming at this. And in, and in that, um, in the duality of, or in the, 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 Jesus creates sort of this paradigm, right? We see, what, we see him talk about, this is moving forward into verse five, and, and we'll sort of move forward from there, five into eight. Um, we see Jesus saying that you must be born of water and of the spirit. Now, our, like, understanding of, like, water, land, earth, fire, um, elemental spirituality that has, is, like, kind of this pagan influence thing that's in a lot of people's minds, I don't really think is what Jesus is getting at here. I, he, he's talking, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, but does it seem like kind of Jesus is talking about water as this, the physical flesh world and the spirit as the spiritual God, realm of God, the kingdom of God? Is that sort yeah. of what he's getting at? Well, you know, people interpret this uh, different ways, and you already referred to how uh, a lot of folks will talk about this as as baptism, and they'll uh, people who believe in baptismal regeneration say that you have to be born of the water, meaning baptism and spirit. You know, it, they'll they'll say they'll, they'll translate they'll interpret Jesus uh, this way. I think he's talking about physical and spiritual. That seems to fit with the, the whole theme of what this discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. That, you know, when a, a child is born, a ch child is born of water. I mean, the water breaks, you know. Everybody, everybody mm -hmm. familiar with childbirth back then now knows, you know, that there's this embryonic fluid, that there's this water that the child is born of. And this is the physical birth, but then there's something more than simply physical birth that's needed in order to see the kingdom of God. The physical birth might be fine in order to see this physical world when you're born, but another transformation is needed to see the, the spiritual world. But, you know, I do want, I don't want to skip over verse four. I know, I don't know how much time we have too quickly, because I think that Nicodemus is uh, when he talks about, 
you know, this whole idea of being uh, hopping back into his mother's womb and being born again. This is way of Nicodemus's way of trying to tell Jesus not too fast here. You know, I'm I'm not quite ready for this. You know, I'm, I'm going to make it sound as ridiculous as possible so I don't have to think about this and deal with this. But but Jesus will not let him go. Uh, Jesus sees mm. that something's going on in this man's uh, heart and mind, which is why he came to him under the cover of darkness. And so Jesus, you know, just lets him have it for for these verses that you, you quoted. <laughs> Yeah, he he pushes. Uh, he sort of leans into Nicodemus's question, which I think, and, and Nicodemus asks asks I think a really important question too. That how can a man be born when he is old? And Jesus pushes back on that too, saying that there is not. It's not a matter of how old you are. It's not a matter of how much time has passed since you were born of water or born of the flesh for you to have that birth of the spirit to be born that second time there isn't that that amount of time is irrelevant to your ability it's almost has more to do with your willingness uh to do so than it does with your like uh, physical body the thing that's holding you here and, and nicodemus has already taken that step uh, toward that by coming to to see jesus where the others will mm-hmm. simply, uh, you know, gang up on Jesus. There's a group of Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors, but Nicodemus is coming individually because then Jesus sees that something's going on in this guy's life. Yeah, he would he would have to be really out of the norm for his people at that time. And the last, you know, I, I, the last few days I've been reading other instances of Jesus's uh, conversations with the Pharisees, and and it does always feel like they're trying to build up some gotcha. They're having to, ha- they, they want to have right. some debate. Uh, just the other day, I was talking to somebody about Matthew 19 and the discussion about divorce, and and how it always feels like it's combative. But here, it truly does. I mean, he addresses Jesus as Rabbi, and it feels like that sort of that right. sort of Rabbi. Uh, pupil relationship, which I think is so cool. And that is so rare, uh, always. I mean, it certainly is rare today. So often, even when different types of Christians, whether they're, you know, fundamentalists or progressive or whatever, you start talking, you you see, see the walls and you see the combative, you know, antagonistic uh, attitude that people aren't even listening to each other. They're they're waiting to to they they're just waiting for a break so they can say what they think without even considering what the other person is saying you know, but that's not happening here you know Nicodemus you know does mm-hmm. seem to to a certain degree anyway you know he's he's not entirely sure comfortable I think with what Jesus is saying but he's there and he's continuing the conversation and in in Jesus's response you know initially in five where he says. Um, you have to be born of water and of the spirit. Some people have interpreted that of like, you need to have a baptism of water and a baptism of the spirit. There's certain Pentecostal denominations that won't consider you to have this, to be truly baptized until you are baptized in the spirit and you speak in tongues and, and um, they're basically creating more and more and more barriers between the people and the kingdom of God by creating these, like um, these mandatory exercises that you have to practice. But Jesus is pretty clearly now into verse 6, he creates the same 
sort of analogy saying that which is born of the flesh is flesh, which I think pretty clearly like ties the water, born of the water, born of the flesh to um, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we see spirit, spirit, right. but here we see like water and flesh, but they're kind of on these same these same uh, wavelengths here. Right. And um, uh, so so that you don't uh, make this into a doctrine like some people do, like you were just referring to here, you know, uh, Jesus in verse 8 then brings in the element of mystery here. Mm-hmm. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here he's talking about being born of the Spirit, but he's also saying, you know, it says we don't know. Don't where it comes from going. You know, so there's a whole element of mystery here yeah. uh, that's, that's present. So that you have to hold this carefully and delicately and not think that you can grasp it with the mind. But this is something that, you know, just you know, comes upon you. Don't know where it comes from, where it's, where, where it's, where it's going to take you, you know. But it happens, you know. And, uh, well, it's a very human urge, I think, to, to try to wrap our minds around certain concepts and either, for some people, create a set of rules or steps or practices to understand it better or to dig deeper and discover the hidden meaning, which is like, so one, one group of the church took that and decided to create a bunch of doctrines and, and, and gateways to you know, uh, block it is basically blockages to truly understanding. And then another school of the church tried to dig deeper into the hidden meaning and create this like mystery, mystery of knowledge that the Gnostics kind of went to. And they kind of both do the same thing, the same wrong thing, which is to not just trust the mystery and understand that there are things that we might not get completely. Right. Right. But I love that Jesus says, don't marvel at what I've said to you in verse seven don't marvel like it's okay like i know this sounds like i'm blowing your mind right now but just into verse eight the wind blows where it wishes you can you can let this blow your mind completely which maybe it should but like it's not up to you the wind the the wind which is the word that gets used for the spirit and david Hart translation makes makes note of that that this is the spirit blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you don't know right. where the spirit is basically so um right. it's the same same group same greek word pneuma here yeah exactly yeah exactly so and, and that's a translational choice but it makes sense why i think a lot of translations use wind because the wind blows and the spirit yeah. does other things but in this in this instance i jesus is talking about the same power i think and it's important because uh uh and this is life. I mean, and life is important, especially in the prologue of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was light of men. Uh, that the whole idea of breath or wind or spirit is is that this is our essence, if you will, and uh, and that this is of God. So, so when a person in the Bible, when a person is alive, is when God breathes the breath of life into that primordial person in, the, in, in, in Genesis. And that was always seen as the beginning of life in the Bible, regardless of what, uh, the, what the whole pro-life, pro-choice thing says. In the, in the Bible, uh, life begins when the breath comes in. The breath comes into a person, that, that's the beginning. When the breath leaves, that's the end. So that's the beginning and end of life in the, in the Bible. Uh, and the only other... Uh, aspect of life is blood 
And they knew that, you know, if you lose too much blood, you're gone. So that's the end of life. That somehow life mm -hmm. is in the blood as well as in the spirit. But these are, these are the two. And basically, that's what's talking about here. Flesh and spirit, you know, blood, if you will. You know, blood, water, you know, is life. You know, spirit, mm -hmm. spirit is life, physical life, spiritual life. And, uh, and, and they understood that was a mystery, just like we were talking about. That you can't put it into... Uh, a doctrine you can't put into a pamphlet of four spiritual laws or, or you know, or the Roman road or whatever, you know, that if you want to be born again, you follow these, you follow these steps and you got it, no matter what, what you think you do or not, you know. <laughs> That's not what this is, you know. This is something entirely different than, than uh, Bill Bright and Campus Crusade and all that stuff. <laughs> But it, it makes sense that that's what we want to do. We want to achieve, or human human beings want to understand and succeed. And we always want to like to, to, to find the way to master a certain thing. And we can't master God. You know, we can't master the spirit. It's not that's not how it it works, and that's not how it's it's not it's not that it works, right? It does. And yeah. and so like for us to try to to try to hammer it down to pin it down and nicodemus in verse 9 presses into this he said how can these things be he he asks again can you clarify for me so that i can really create a, a rubric in my mind for how this all works and jesus again kind of brushes the question off to the side and, and the, the metaphor of birth really is good this way that no one can de no one can control uh, especially in that time anyway you know when a person is going to be born you know, the baby's born when the baby <laughs> wants to be born. You know, there's, there's no nothing right. you can do about it. You can't stop the birth from happening. And, you know, back then, you really couldn't really speed it up too much. You know, at least not. Even today, you only have only a certain window that you can you can speed it up. So, you know, the, we, are, we are not in control. And that's what the, this new birth is all about. That's what the spiritual life in the kingdom of God is all about. That we aren't in control. God is in control. Spirit is in control. And that's what—that's the kingdom of the spirit, or the kingdom of God. Uh, in verse eleven, Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." Yeah. Uh, and into verse into verse twelve, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, not really answering. The question, but saying you need to you need to let the uh, you need to let this wisdom be heavenly wisdom, and it will come to you, and it will be there. It sounded like you had something to say. No, I, w I was going to say that this is this is the general area where we have to decide where Jesus is talking and where the author of the Gospel of John is talking, because uh, mm -hmm. up to here Jesus is always talking about I I I I. And then after verse 13, there's no more I, it's always he, he, he. So you're talking a third person. So I would say that, I don't know what I said before when you you listened to me, but you, you say you listened to an episode that I talked about this. Yeah. But, but, but I think that it's probably verse 12 is the end of what Jesus is, is uh, it's the end of Jesus' words here. And even in verse 11 here, I think we have some, we have some of the influence of the, uh, Johannine community, the Church of John in, in Ephesus, because you have the we. Now, you could always say Jesus speaking of this, this royal we, kind of like 
God did in Genesis. But this we, you know, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen in you, and that you is plural, by the way, do not receive our witness. So he's not just talking to Nicodemus, he's talking to a broader you here. So I think you have to you have to hear the the voice of John's church in Ephesus. He's saying, look, we're proclaiming this, but you are not listening to us. You know, this is the testimony of mm -hmm. Jesus, and we are we are with Jesus in this. So that's where you have to kind of understand this. And then after verse twelve, from then on, it's all it's all the the gospel writer, whoever that you know final author is of, of the Gospel of John, and that would include, of course, John three sixteen. This is not something that Jesus said. This is something said about Jesus. The, the the um the language changes there and it changes in a way that actually mirrors uh, a, a portion that's post a quotation in uh the discussion of john the baptist later on in three um where john the baptist is exalting christ at 22 we won't get into the actual language here but he's exalting christ in 22 through uh 30 and then in, in the ESV, and different translations will do this differently, my copy of The Voice actually lumps all of this into John the Baptist's quote, but the ESV closes the quotation mark from, uh, from John at the end of 30, and we have the essentially the narrator of the gospel saying, he who comes from above is above all, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way and that language is very close to what we see in 13 on yeah. in yeah. uh in g in red text in jesus's language uh earlier on in this chapter so i, yeah. I think you might be right about this i mean yeah. Yeah. it really feels like an, an interpolation almost yeah. from yeah. the the author of the gospel yeah and so you can't take these uh red red letters literally you know the greek was not written in red red ink you know so you you, mm -hmm. ha you have to decide in the Arno, as you mentioned at the very beginning, there is no punctuation. That wasn't until the, what, the 12th century, I think, 13th century, you know, so we don't have any punctuation here. So we don't have any quotation marks. Uh, so um, you, have to be, you have to be your own biblical scholar when you're reading this and decide what makes sense, where, where Jesus stops talking and where the author of the John, John's Gospel begins talking and i think the end of verse 12 is is the best place the uh the, the, there, there's ways that you can figure it out without just depending on the red text and there are certainly yeah there's no quotation marks in the greek and there's no it's it's not again discern uh discernment and nuance are everything and not just your own faith and formation formation and in understanding you know forming a relationship with the divine but in interpreting scripture and trying to make sense of what's being said, you see somewhere where it says Jesus responded. You can look in the Greek and see different ways that it's indicated that Jesus is actually talking or him using the first person, for example, though he doesn't always talk about himself in the first person, right? He talks about himself in the third person at times. Yeah, when he talks about the Son of Man, yeah. Right, right. So he refers to himself that way. So it's not totally out of the blue that he would be saying right. something like this. Right, right. The way that the Gospel of John does this sort of narration and does this sort of interpretation along the way, it would totally make sense that this is like, and it changes so much about, uh, to me at least, it changes so much about John 3.16 that it might not actually be Jesus himself saying it, that uh, 
<laughs> really, it's fascinating, man. It's so and cool. The, 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 the topic really changes here, too. It goes from the kingdom of God and how you entered the kingdom of God by being born again to believing in Jesus. So he doesn't talk about believing in Jesus before that. So it's it's really a different thing, you know. You can't equate the two, mm. which is what most people do. People say, do equate the two. Uh I worry that we are not going to have enough time to get through the rest of even this section of Jesus's text. I wonder if we shouldn't um, shouldn't wrap up here and uh, yeah, I think that's fine. I, th I think uh, we have done all, 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 all of what Jesus said, which is what we we want yeah. to talk about. Have the dialogue <laughs> between Nicodemus and good. Jesus. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Before we sign off, um, can you tell folks uh, where they can find you online? Um, maybe do a. I'll, I'll put some uh, website links in the in the show notes as well. I have a a blog site that has all the links to to everything. Uh, and that is either pastordavis.com or marshalldavis.us, uh, which is important. You don't want marshalldavis.com or you're going to get some guy in Texas with Confederate flags over his site. That's, that's not me. So <laughs> marshalldavis.us. And, uh, and you can just do a, uh, if you get, get onto that blog site and you have a link to the podcast, a link to my YouTube channel, a link to my author page on Amazon, as well as everything else. So that's the easiest way to find me. And I would definitely recommend anyone listening that um, you go check out uh, Marshall's podcast and the YouTube channel. There's some great videos there. And um, and this was just a, a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. I really, yeah. really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. This week's poem is by William Blake. I have no name. I am but two days old. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. Sweet joy befall thee. Pretty joy. Sweet joy but two days old. Sweet joy I call thee. Thou dost smile. I sing the while. Sweet joy befall thee. Thanks everybody. Sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream. And night we ran through mansions of glory and suicide machines. Sprung from cages on Highway 9, chrome wheel fuel injection and stepping out over the line. Whoa, baby, this town suburbs from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide. Just wrap your legs round these velvet rims and strap your hands crossed.